0: It's back-to-back Rose-themed episodes with The Truth Will Out. When Kirsten and Charlie, Rose's daughter and granddaughter respectively, come for a visit, Rose is nervous about what dark family secrets might be discovered. When going through Rose's will, Kirsten finds out some shocking information that just might destroy this mother-daughter relationship. for the friendship, we've come so far and traveled wide, you're my best friends, I could never lie, I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing, no matter the misters that come. It's a beautifully sunny day in Miami or L.A., depending on if you're talking about the actual house or the fictitious location. We enter the kitchen to find Rose as bright and yellow in her dress and apron as the sun is outside. She's baking something and sneaking a nibble when Dorothy enters in her business casual robe that is very light, maybe periwinkle, and I'm almost certain with shoulder pads. Good lord, these women don't know how to be comfortable. As Dorothy spies the treat Rose is working on, she asks what she's making. Rose gleefully responds, It's her famous maple syrup, honey, brown, sugar, molasses, Rice Krispies log, of course. Dorothy doesn't hesitate to take a bite, except for taking the time to joke that you could use the treat to panel your den, because it would probably be as sturdy as drywall. As Dorothy samples, Rose explains that some people add flour to it, where I'm not quite sure, but she doesn't as it would make it too heavy, because it's not like the molasses or marshmallow or cereal would do that. Dorothy struggles through the sweetness of the log when we learn Rose's daughter Kirsten is coming for a visit, and this is her favorite, whether or not she uses her own teeth to eat it. Sharing that her granddaughter has never been to Florida, Rose starts rattling off all of the amusing places she wants to take her to. As Rose works through the list of worlds, you know, sea, gator, reptile, she then gets to Parrot Village. And I'm not sure if it was intentional acting or just to be really funny, but Dorothy responds in horror that the parrots only get a village and not their own world. But in doing so, she lets out the biggest parrot-sounding squawk of, what? I like to think she wanted to go as big and bird as possible. What? In the movie A Christmas Story, which I have obscenely memorized, uh, there's a scene after Ralphie says, oh, fudge. And then the mom calls the friend that he says he learns the word from. And my brother and I quote this all the time, because all you can hear on the other line is, uh, you know, she's like, "Do you know where he heard that word?" And she goes, "Probably from his father." And then she goes, "No, she, he heard it from your son." And you just hear, "What? Mm. What? What?"
1: <laughs> I do know. Exactly <laughs> it sounds
0: very similar to Dorothy talking about Parrot Village. <laughs> Before Dorothy's sarcasm can assault Rose any further, Blanche enters in a silky light purple pajama robe. I'm not sure if that is a thing, but I'm not sure what else to call it. And she's wearing that over her reasonable nightgown. She's holding a newspaper. A newspaper is—I'm just kidding. I know I cover everything, but hopefully you guys aren't so young that you don't know what a newspaper is. But it's possible. (laughs) It's possible someone's listening to this that has never, like, held a newspaper. My God. Anyway, Blanche is in a tizzy about the Duncan Osgood trial. He's the fancy man in Palm Beach whose wife was found drowned at the bottom of their private lake. I couldn't find a story that fit that exact description, but there was a horribly tragic story from 1981 that might have inspired it. Michael Scott Keene had married Anita Lopez in June of 1981, and as soon as they wed, he had taken out multiple life insurance policies on her, policies that doubled if she died in an accident. Michael took advantage of Anita only being 22 and he was 33 years old and that she was a Cuban immigrant. He eventually totally isolated her from her family, and she quickly got pregnant. After only five months of marriage on November 15th, 1981, the couple took their boat called Foreplay 2 out into the Atlantic via Dania Beach in Florida. From there, I'll say he took advantage of being out in the water and her life insurance policy. And if you want to know more, you can Google Michael Scott Keene in Florida because this is a happy show, and we're not going to tell sad stories like that. But eventually, after four trials, he was found guilty, and he is away for life. So while the story is different, perhaps the story was a bit of the inspiration for Duncan Osgood. Granted, Duncan's case is a lot more lighthearted. The wife was found with his dickie in her hand, for crying out loud. Dickies have been around for hundreds of years— no, not that kind. A dickie is a false shirt worn to look like a full shirt. They aren't as cute as their name. It's basically the clip-on tie of the shirt world. And yes, Dorothy, the shirt dicky or the other dicky, both would have been pretty damning evidence that you had been at a crime scene. Sophia joins the ladies and is in her pajamas with a heavy, thick, very warm-looking, not-quite-coral, not-quite-pink robe. She doesn't bother with greetings. She's more bothered by her high blood pressure. It's 230 over 190. I have never understood blood pressure readings, but what I can tell you is her numbers are bad. It's actually in the highest zone of blood pressure and requires medical attention. Luckily, Dorothy knows the blood pressure device Sophia is using is broken, and this is all a ruse to not have to leave her room when Rose's family comes. This moment is a little weird directionally, like when you watch a live show and they cut to the camera that isn't on the person talking. That happens here as we watch Blanche make a sweet smirk as Sophia rambles on about not being able to change rooms, but it's kind of like, can we see Sophia talking to Dorothy, not Blanche kind of smiling weird? Well, Dorothy won't have it. Sophia is staying in her room, which is the smallest. If anything, shouldn't Rose just have her family in her room? She has one of the bigger rooms, and it has a private bathroom. She and Kirsten could sleep on the bed, and the grandkid could take the full couch that she has in her room. See, I'm a logistical planning queen. Sophia gives in and agrees she'll stay with Dorothy, with one caveat, no broccoli at dinner. That's because broccoli, like asparagus and Brussels sprouts, has the complex sugar raffinose, which causes excessive gas. I like that word. It's kind of like what it does. It, you you know, makes your nose raffy, raffy nose, like raffy, raffy, your nose. Are we talking about broccoli farts? Yeah, Dorothy sits in silent embarrassment when Rose starts to thank them for making accommodations for her family. She also admits that even though it's her own daughter coming to town, she's feeling nervous about it. While Dorothy and Blanche can't understand being nervous about your own child visiting, Sophia gets it. She had a friend whose daughter was a hitman or hit woman for the mafia. Sophia even goes so far as to say the song That Lady is a Tramp by Frank Sinatra was actually about that daughter. But sorry, Sophia, your tale of Teresa's a tramp is very wrong. Frank Sinatra didn't even write that song. It's actually a Rodgers and Hammerstein number from the musical Babes in Arms. It was written in 1937 as a bit of a get over yourself in regards to fancy folks and their social etiquette. In a moment we have all lived through with our grandparents, parents, or maybe even ourselves— Dorothy asks Sophia why she's even telling this random story about her friend's daughter. Her reason? Because someone had asked her about Frank Sinatra. There's simple but great writing here as Dorothy tries to clear up, no, we were talking to Rose about being nervous. Sophia, now annoyed, says, then stay on the subject. It's the subject of many an internal scream. Finally getting around to answering the question, Rose explains she's nervous because Kirsten is the executor of her will and they'll be going through her paperwork. Good job, Rose. Get those final plans in order. But again, while it's a bit nerve-wracking to go through your post-death plan, it shouldn't be scary to do so with your own child. There seems to be something more going on here. This is all quite alluring to Blanche, who feels Rose's ambiguity is implying something naughty in her closet. Of course, this sets her off into a sexually driven fantasy about bequeathing something special to the men of her life. Due to Blanche's history, shall we say, Dorothy asks if Blanche would be reading that will at the Astrodome. When someone has passed and there's a reading of the will, those involved are usually invited to participate to learn of their inheritances. The Astrodome is in Houston, Texas, and is home to the Oilers and Astros, a football and baseball team, respectively, and is just shy of 68,000 seats. You know, just enough to hold all of Blanche's lovers. The Astrodome was quite the spectacle when it opened in the 1960s. It was proclaimed as the eighth wonder of the world, being the first multi-purpose field and the first to use fake grass, or AstroTurf. Yes, AstroTurf was named after the AstroDome. Now that's a fun fact. I know the AstroDome somewhat well. We talked a few episodes back about my encounter at the Downtowner Inn in Houston, did, I don't know if that made the cut or not, though.
1: Oh, I don't know. I don't but, know if it did. Mm, I might have cut it. It might be in the. It might be in the bloopers. Okay. Where yeah, you stayed at a shady <laughs> motel, and there was some videos. On the TV that appeared to have been made in the room that you were actually in vacancy style. So disturbing. The shower had black tile. (laughs) You turned on the black light. It was a nightmare. We've
0: experienced
1: it. It's awful.
0: A recap. That's perfect. So the reason I needed to get somewhere to go shower was because I'd spent three days sleeping on the concrete floor of the Astrodome because my friends and I were there for an American Idol audition. (laughs) And I don't know how many people were there there. Couple thousand, I would guess, and uh, it was a bizarro summer camp nightmare.
1: And a lot of people don't know this, but you are Ruben Stuttered.
0: Coco, have you ever been bequeathed anything?
1: No, I haven't. I, the only person that that would have happened with would have been my maternal grandmother, but she was a mean old lady, <laughs> and she. I feel like I'm bequeathed. I'm worthy of being bequeathed something. You're bequeathable. Never.
0: Blanche quickly moves on from gifting her former lovers a little thank you to pranking her maybe not as loved as she was right after the Transplant episode's sister Virginia, saying she'd say she would leave her a diamond brooch, Wedgwood china and stock in AT&T. Created by Josiah Wedgwood in the 1700s, Wedgwood China was a high-end, newly created style of china and porcelain design. It is well known for its iconic blue color. Prices start at a couple of hundred dollars and go up to the thousands. As far as the AT&T stock, AT&T is a communications company that went public in 1984. Having some of that stock in 1985 would have been pretty nice. Of course, Blanche didn't actually have any of those things. She was merely relishing in the idea of making her sister miserable one last time. As Blanche leaves the kitchen, Dorothy stares in disbelief while Rose giggles and actively pours straight sugar on top of her dessert logs. It's time for Kirsten's arrival. Dorothy is reading on the couch while Sophia, knitting, is singing. That's why the lady is a tramp. Only she's not singing, lady. She's humming, making the point that the song was about Teresa, with Dorothy in a brown sweater and khaki pants, an outfit that Coco, you had some thoughts on.
1: Yeah, she looked like she would have not. Uh, she would not be out of place on the uh, Wakandan council in Black Panther. Yeah. <laughs>
0: She's like the sassy secretary of yeah. Wakanda business. Still
1: formal, but it has that flair of uh, of that flash that they have there. Yeah, and, but also yeah.
0: the rigid, almost militaristic. Militaristic, yes. <laughs> like collar and shoulders. With all of that going on, it's nice to see Sophia in a rainbow plaid collared shirt and bright blue cardigan with light pants and Blanche in a bright purple two-piece skirt blouse combo with a patterned scarf. She's delighted with her shopping finds as she comes in the door with bags, having bought sexy clothes, of course, and the unexpected and, while fabulous, probably uncomfortable to walk in, sequined socks. Socks that make the personal statement of this end up, according to Sophia.
1: I did want to say one more thing. No. Um, This is Coco, by the way. Oh,
0: Oh! hello? It's Coco?
1: Hello. I failed to mention earlier just how completely obscene those logs were the dessert <laughs> logs were I, I mean, I'd be surprised if they didn't get at least a 100 calls from people saying you can't put that on television.
0: <laughs> Just because they because they're
1: so turd like shiny like turds. They looked like turds.
0: Sophia's memory issues are really coming to light in this episode. When she learns that Rose's granddaughter is named Charlie after her grandfather, Sophia, just like she did with Frank Sinatra in the kitchen, gets all mixed up when it comes to who is the grandchild and who is the bookie. Because, you know, Charlie is a bookie's name, a bookie being someone that helps to facilitate bets. But that's less of a shady job than being an insurance salesman, which is what the real Charlie was. Or maybe it's not that much less shady. I don't know. As Sophia wanders down the hall, Blanche has a question for Dorothy. While she presents multiple outs, if it's too personal, tell me to shut up. If you don't want to answer it, tell me to shut up. Dorothy's response, you've caught me coming out of the kitchen in the middle of the night naked and eating an Oreo. Nothing is too personal. Is this show sponsored by Oreos? Okay, hear me out. They already have golden Oreos. And they do let you personalize Oreos, but I couldn't get it exactly how I wanted. So if anyone listening works for Nabisco or has an in, we need Golden Girls Oreos. If they can make strawberry cereal milk ice cream birthday cake Oreos, we can get some golden ones with maybe like a cheesecake filling and maybe even their faces on them. So let's make those calls. I'm not going to name names here, but one time years ago, one of my girls was enjoying a bowl of ice cream on the couch. She finished the ice cream, looked around, and started to lick the bowl clean. We've all done it. No shame there. Except she didn't look very far because our other friend walked out and caught her mid-lick. This story lives on to this day some almost 20 years later. Coco, have you ever been caught in an awkward situation like that or vice versa? Where it's not like a huge deal... That you're busted.
1: A few months ago, I was laying in bed, and I had the covers up above, like up to my nose, and I was, you know, I had my finger in my nose. (laughs) And you walked into the room, and I shouted, hello, as though I was in a private space (laughs) that you had busted into. I let you know what was happening before you had realized it. And I was offended that you had looked at me even though you didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) Yes is the answer. Yes.
0: Blanche is concerned about Rose's behavior around Kirsten's visit. It's clear there's a lot more going on than just paperwork. With her nose stuck in the paper because of the Duncan Osgood investigation, Blanche's perception might be a bit skewed. Seeing as Mrs. Paxton, the victim, left her napkin fortune to her husband just the day before her death, surely something similar must be happening with Rose. Dorothy's right that the changing of the will is purely circumstantial. The photo that came out of Duncan in scuba gear and dragging a body downstairs isn't so much. It's not only damning, it sounds like that classic Dateline where there's the couple that went scuba diving on their honeymoon and the girl's tank got messed with and there's a photo of her in the water in the background. So maybe it's just like Dorothy said, a picture from their wedding album. With that, Dorothy and Blanche end up in a comical staring contest. I really wonder how many takes this was or if neither of them broke and this was the only take. It seems impossible as they just stare at each other, the camera bouncing back and forth between them. Before they can find out who wins the stare down, the door opens and it's the Nyland family. Kirsten dressed in a pale blue suit with a light floral blouse. Rose is in the power suit of my dreams. It's pale lavender tailored and has the sexiest loose long cream tie. The girls are delighted to meet little Charlie. Their voices and mannerisms slip into a comforting grandma mode. She tells them she gets to go to astronaut camp while she's there. Blanche, having lived in Miami for quite some time and even knowing where there's naked men's mud wrestling, has somehow never heard of or considered date hunting at astronaut camp. Charlie is dressed in my elementary school dream outfit. She's got a little side ponytail and some leg warmers. Very fashionable. In a bit of an oh boy, Rose celebrates that she has a granddaughter that wants to be an astronaut. Charlie corrects her. She doesn't want to be an astronaut. She wants to go to meet boys that want to be astronauts, just like Blanche. I know this was the 80s, but couldn't someone step in and say, no, girl, you do what you want to do. Worry about boys later. Charlie is being played by 10-year-old Bridget Anderson. For a young starlet, she had quite the career, having roles in Remington Steel, Fantasy Island, and Family Ties. Sadly, like so many child stars, as Bridget got older, she fell into the world of the drug scene of Los Angeles in the 90s. And in 1997, at just 21 years of age, Bridget lost her battle with addiction and died of a heroin overdose. Kirsten is played by Christina or Christine, she's gone by both, Belford. She got her start in 1971 and had many single-episode roles on some of our favorites, like Chips, La La, Cagney and Lacey. But she also had some longer stints on shows like Dynasty, Silver Spoons, Murder, She Wrote, All My Children, and Beverly Hills 90210. She was even on an episode of Empty Nest, the series, not the episode. I've always wondered about the family casting for Rose. When we meet Cousin Sven in the future, he seems like a perfect fit. Tall, doofy, not the sharpest tool in the crown box. But with Kirsten, we get a cold, overly proper meanie. Alma, as Rose's mom, she sort of worked. But how could someone have Rose as their mother and not be a warm, caring, funny, albeit maybe a little bit dumb, of a person? (music) When Kirsten says she's happy to be there to go over the estate papers with her mother, Rose nervously laughs and corrects her. It's no estate. It's just a will. While saying estate planning sounds like only something rich people would do, maybe to plan what to do with all of their properties, anyone can do estate planning. It's like a more in-depth and detailed will and can include documents relating to property, health, and memorial plans. While neither Nyland even gives a hint of a lifelong Minnesotan accent, Charlie hands out while Kirsten exclaims, We hope you like your gift of honey molasses maple syrup rice crispy bars that they each gave to Dorothy and Blanche. With their fancy wrapped logs in hand, complete with purple ribbons and all, Blanche and Dorothy smile through their disappointment, Dorothy adding, How sweet. How incredibly sweet. I really would like to try one of these logs to see if it's even edible. Rose takes her family to get settled into their rooms. While seeing them off down the hallway, Blanche asks Dorothy what she'll be doing with her log. Well, she'll do what you do with any log, which is to burn it. Out on the lanai, we have a family dinner happening and a very rare full table. Sophie and Charlie are stuck with their backs towards us. They all enjoyed the dinner Rose made, a casserole of mashed potatoes, veggies, and lamb, a.k.a. shepherd's pie. Rose, I know where you come from they call it that, but... Everyone calls it that. Originally called cottage pie, the title of shepherd's pie came around 1854 in Great Britain, where the dish originated. Having a layer of meat, a layer of veggies, and topped with mashed potatoes, shepherd's pie started out as a leftover recipe. If you had enough of each, you could get pretty full and warm with some scraps thrown in a dish together. Being that it is British and mostly just potatoes, it's not surprising Sophia isn't a fan. But for crying out loud, Rose spent all day making a nice meal for everyone. Sophia, even if you didn't like it, you didn't have to say out loud that you think it's garbage. It's also no surprise that it was Charlie, the late husband's favorite. Sometimes on sitcoms, when characters are in unusual positions, such as Sophia and Charlie at the table, a director might do a straight shot of them but put a wall behind them. Kind of like in the 70s show when they're all sitting around the table in the basement. It can be a little disorienting when that happens. That's why I appreciate that frequent director Terry Hughes kept the shot to the side of them so they were all just at the table with no weird wall. While Rose reminisces about making shepherd's pie for Charlie once a week, Blanche hops in to say George only made requests in the bedroom. When she remembers, there might have been a kitchen-related request involving a butcher block, which can be a slab of wood like a cutting board or an independent piece like a small kitchen island. Dorothy stops her there, though. Not only are they trying to eat, but there's a child in their presence. Blanche catches herself and gives Charlie a huge smile that clearly has a little bit of embarrassment behind it. When it's time for one of the four dessert logs, Dorothy and Blanche pass, only requesting coffee. When Blanche realizes little Charlie didn't eat her Brussels sprouts, she says she doesn't like them. Nor does Sophia. That's why she hid them in her purse and is kind enough to offer Charlie the same out. Growing up, well, still to this day, I'm the pickiest eater you will ever meet. I remember when I first thought of spitting my veggies into my napkin and then saying I needed to use the bathroom at dinner to then flush them down and how I felt like the biggest, sneakiest genius. We follow Kirsten and Rose into the kitchen where Kirsten opens up about having been surprised her mom, being independently wealthy, would want to live with someone else. Um, hi, Kirsten. People don't have to live by themselves just because they are physically or financially able to. Maybe they just don't want to be alone or they're helping someone out, or for medical reasons they shouldn't be alone. So stop judging. Also, you said your two roommates are nice. Does Sophia not count? That's my question. Kirsten acts all, Well, now I get it, because your roommates are so great. Of course you'd want to live with them. But Rose is far more concerned with showing her the will a will that is hidden in a cookie jar because that's where she was always catching Charlie. I get that Rose is kind of trying to break news to Kirsten or maybe to just get her to shut up about her choice of lifestyle, but maybe going over the will while you're still cleaning up from dinner and everyone is waiting for you to return with dessert isn't the best timing. Rose knows Kirsten was hoping for her sapphire necklace but warns her that she's changed the jewelry to her pearl earrings. Kirsten pays no mind and keeps reading. Getting to the end, she starts to shake her overly moosed hair in disbelief. There's basically nothing. Rose assures her daughter she's had the numbers checked and double-checked, and that paper is accurate. Kirsten pushes back. Her father was the most successful salesman at his insurance company. How could there be nothing left of his retirement? Rose is timid and apprehensive as she explains that there wasn't that much to begin with, and additionally, she's needed to live on it since Charlie, the only moneymaker in the family, passed away. Sure, Rose works now, but not full-time, and sometimes she's only volunteering. So it seems pretty fair that she would get to live off of her husband's money, especially after having to dress him for the paramedics. Worried the ladies were going to be making yet another sweet log, Dorothy and Blanche come in to help clean up. Not even acknowledging their presence, Kirsten has the nerve to accuse Rose of spending her father's lifetime fortune in just 15 years. Ma'am, that is your mother's money. If you were worried she was only splurging and not taking care of her bills, that would be one thing. But to say it in such a judgmental, angry, and disappointed tone? No thank you. The idea of Rose getting swindled isn't that outrageous. It is out of her character to be like, I lost it in a get-rich-quick scheme and bad investments, when really they could have had Rose, a person living in Miami, a not-cheap city, be more defensive. Yeah, I spent it. I needed to eat. I needed a place to live. I wanted to do with the money what I wanted. She had a lifetime of work, too, but didn't get retirement from raising children. So she can party on a retirement of someone else if she wants to. Kirsten is a totally nasty bee here, all but spitting on her mother as she tantrums out of the room. Dorothy and Blanche rush to Rose's side, but not to comfort her, to kind of call her out. She's not the type of person to get caught up in scams or to waste money, but even to her best friends who are trying to help her, Rose sticks to her guns and says, well, that's what happened, so deal with it, before she leaves the kitchen in a huff. Dorothy and Blanche look to each other with concern. They know something is not quite right. Welcome back from the break. We join Rose in the kitchen wearing a purple ruffled robe pajama thing. She's watching the teeny-tiniest little television on the kitchen table, and we know it's late because the national anthem has come on. Even though CNN was the first 24-hour channel, which began in 1980, it wasn't until cable was in more homes that radio and television stations didn't turn off at midnight. That's right. At midnight, stations would turn off their transmitters, almost all of them signing off with the star-spangled banner. And that was it. No phones. No TV in the middle of the night when you can't sleep. How did we get through it? Another great example of this moment is in Poltergeist. The TV signs off, then goes to static, then they're here. Rose, ever the patriot, stands up and puts her hand over her heart. Not only does putting your hand over your heart look nice, it was done as a sign of respect. Fun fact, when someone has their hand over their heart, they tend to be more honest. So take that, lie detector tests. Dorothy enters and throws back to her marine life by giving Rose the order to stand down. Dorothy's pajamas are reminiscent of a pink tuxedo. It's silky and long with, well, to bring it full circle, a collar area that, while part of the outfit, looks just like a dickie. Blanche comes in annoyed as she thought Rose was in her own bathroom and she had spent the last few minutes trying to comfort her. It turns out she was only comforting a door. Blanche is in a pink and yellow nightie with an almost quilted pattern-looking cover. It's all very light and flowy-looking. Rose has a blank stare. Not hearing or reacting to anything the girls are saying, she just says, you shouldn't lie. Now Sophia is in the mix. She walks in just in time to hear Rose say that a little white lie isn't that big of a deal. Being the self-imposed queen of the Catholics, Sophia reminds her that yes, even a white lie is a sin and you'll go to hell. The term white lie has been around since the 1300s, and it means to tell a harmless lie. The white coming from the days of black and white, like black magic being bad, white lies are seen as not as bad. Not to worry, though, this is literally in reference to the colors, not anything to do with race. Sophia claims to never lie. When Dorothy tries to catch her in one by asking how much she lost at the dog races last week, Sophia is totally honest. It's none of her business. This starts a classic middle-of-the-night table conversation with the theme, The Biggest Lie You've Ever Told. For Blanche, it's when she told her little sister Charmaine that she was left at the door by gypsies. Oh boy. That is an old stereotype about the Romani people that identify as gypsy. She, of course, did this to Charmaine out of spite. Dorothy's? She lied to Stan about him being good in bed, but only once a year, when it was his birthday. Rose finally admits that she lied to Kirsten and gives us more of a peek at what might be going on. There's something that happened with Charlie, the dad, that has led Rose to lie to her own daughter. But what could it be? I can't remember every little white lie I've told. There aren't very many and mostly because I'm a terrible liar. Um, You know, besides the little stuff like I can't make it when I just don't want to go or maybe I've double booked myself and don't want the other person to feel bad. Once I lied to a guy that I had gone on a date with and later we bumped into each other at a bar and he asked about hanging out with him outside. I had actually overheard him and his friends using derogatory language like the F word but not the swear, the slur, and was like, yeah, I'm never talking to you again. So I said I was leaving the bar and acted like I left. Only all my friends had left and I wanted to keep dancing at that same bar. And the guy didn't leave. He just sat outside the door so I couldn't leave. Otherwise, he'd know I had been there and I'd been lying to him. And one of the biggest lies I ever told was to a jerk of a guy that I also didn't want to hang out with before I left town for a while on vacation. So I told him that I couldn't go out the night before I left because I had to focus on packing and things like that. When really myself and another guy were going to a street festival, a big one, huge, so many people and vendors. So, of course, in all of Portland, I bumped into the jerk guy. I could feel my face turning red. I had never lied like that and certainly never was busted in such fashion. It was horrible. I don't know why I couldn't have just said, you're a pretty awful person and I'd rather spend my time with this guy and I only didn't tell you so I wouldn't hurt your feelings. But I didn't and instead I felt guilty. And finally, in the vein of Blanche's story, I still to this day joke that my brother is actually my son. Here's why. (laughs) We're nine years apart, and there are a few months every year that we're actually 10 years apart. I don't remember how old he was when this first started, pretty young, maybe like seven. And I was like, Mac, shh, hey, so I need to tell you something. I'm actually your mom. I would do this every few months. I would just kind of pull him aside and be like, hey, as your mom, I need you to like do better with that. And usually he would just tell me to shut up but I know that there were times that he was not sure. So especially when I was a teenager and I could drive him around and take him to go get food and stuff, I remember specifically one time I took him to get McDonald's and this young guy working there just started flirting with me and also kind of via my brother was like giving him, "Oh, do you want a toy from the Happy Meal? Oh, your mom would like that. And I'm just like, well, he's getting free stuff, so I won't correct this guy. Um, so yeah, so that's been – and still we joke about like, hey, as your mother's sister, you need to listen to me. So I get where Blanche is coming from. I find that very relatable. Rose won't tell the girls what's going on. When Blanche calls her out for that being a bit unfair as she's an open book and keeps no secrets from the girls, Sophia gets a nice burn in with, your life is an open blouse. Blanche giggles it off, and now it's the next morning. Little Charlie is in her grandmother's room playing with her clothes and makeup when Rose comes in to tell her lunch is ready. Inappropriate boundary alert, why is the child asking if her mom and grandma have made up yet? She doesn't need to know what's going on, Kirsten. Rose says no before quickly changing the subject to how nice Charlie looks. She also looks like me when I clean my room and find all my fun clothes and jewelry, piling it on until I transform into the pigeon lady from Home Alone 2. Charlie looks so nice because she has a date with Robert, a rich man that lives in a castle. Rose starts to help with Charlie's makeup. I mean, sort of. It's it's not the best makeup acting. She just kind of rubs the brush on each corner of her eye and is like, oh, you're done. TV magic, baby. While Rose continues to help with Charlie's makeup, she brings up when she also went out with a Robert. His dad owned the movie theater, so she saw the same movie 15 times in one month. Charlie, while only 10, is a smart aleck and very in touch with adult complaints and says, Sounds like cable. hey But also that's true to this day. The same movies are on every single day. <laughs> And I have to pay so much money for that.
1: Greenland starring Gerard Butler is on every morning. (laughs) Rain or shine.
0: And that's how we start our day. Rose goes back to the imaginary date Charlie's going on, asking for more information about her Robert. Well, he looks like Bruce Springsteen, but he's like Grandpa because he's a hard worker and he's loaded. Again, this is such a weird take on Rose's family. I find it so hard to believe, even if Charlie was well off, that Rose would have raised a daughter that was so materialistic and only shared with her daughter that her grandpa was a rich guy. It's all pretty gross, especially when that attitude is passed on to her granddaughter, who, again, is 10 years old, is only worried about boys at space camp dating a rich man and knowing her granddaddy was rich. It's pretty disgusting. Rose takes the opportunity to start sharing real information about Charlie and how he would have loved his granddaughter when Sophia, or in this case, we'll call her Ellen, because she is bursting in. Ellen Burstyn. She's an actress. This is an inside joke. You're welcome to steal at any time someone bursts into a room. Anyway, Sophia, in her adorable green and blue checkered house dress, is frantic about the spaghetti getting cold, and in her usual calm, caring manner, yells at them to go eat and also roasts Rose for wearing too much rouge, or blush, which is very true. We're once again treated to Sophia and Dorothy sharing a bed. At least this time, they're in Dorothy's bigger bed. The room is dark, but we can see Dorothy is tossing, turning, and beating the life out of her pillow. Standing up to show off her white cotton long-sleeved high-collared nightgown is Sophia, who can barely handle all of the movement, comparing it to one of my favorite roller coasters in the world, which is at Disneyland and Disney World theme parks, Space Mountain. But the nail in the coffin are Dorothy's size 9 feet that are freezing and pushed up on Sophia's butt, and she refers to them as fudgicles. Not fudgicles, fudgicles. I'm assuming it's the same thing?
1: I really think that's the only correct way to say it.
0: <laughs> From now on.
1: It always has been. I would like a box of fudgicals.
0: Wait, you you say fudgicals?
1: Oh, it's incorrect, but it's the only proper oh. way.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's the fun way.
0: Yeah. Can I It's kind of and kind of the same way she tightens everything, you know, mental and yeah. physical you yeah, like, have
1: time for fudge sickle? Yeah,
0: fudge sickle. No, Obviously, fudgical. Obviously a fudgical. Fudgical. Rose comes in hearing the noise and needing to talk to someone. So Dorothy kicks Sophia out to go stay in Rose's room so Rose can stay with Dorothy. Good thing no one has lice here. I say that because I, while having worked with kids for over 13 years, was lucky enough to only get lice twice. The first time I had to be diagnosed by my little brother who had given them to me when I came home for a visit after moving to Vegas. By the time I learned I had lice, I had already visited with and stayed in the bed of five different friends. The one house where most of them lived, well, I went over after telling them and they were all tearing their beds apart to do laundry. And I got some really unhappy looks from them and i still feel pretty bad about it we get some real mother daughter interactions happening when dorothy reminds sophia to take her teeth with her when she leaves sophia being like don't talk to your mother like that if i die in my sleep you'll feel bad dorothy's response to her attempted guilt trip yeah i'll risk it rose has a light blue nightgown on when she asks dorothy if she would be up for talking It's kind of strange yet accurate in the I'm from New York and can't be bothered for Dorothy to decline Rose's invite for conversation. On one hand, Dorothy knows something is going on with Rose and the will. On the other, she doesn't lie about how she's feeling. And instead of saying yes right away, she's saying, I'm tired and going to bed. We can talk in the morning. I wish I could harness some of that energy when people want to talk and I'm just not in the mood to do so. But Rose just can't help herself. She needs to talk. So she does that passive thing where she just starts talking about her feelings instead of, too bad you're tired, I need to talk now. Confessing that she is a liar, Dorothy doesn't bite the bait and is like, yeah, everyone I sleep with is a liar. Which, looking back on her history, yeah, I think she's pretty right on. That doesn't help Rose's situation, though. She is stuck in her thinking, and she's starting to spiral about her creating a snowball of lies. This tale has bored Dorothy to sleep and left Rose to twaddle on about how she was originally going to take the hit, that whatever it is about Charlie the husband that has Rose so upset, she'd rather Kirsten be mad at her for it than to ever have her think ill of her husband. But the lies are too much. She's letting her granddaughter think of her grandfather in a not-honest light, and she can't have that. She has to pull off the Band-Aid, work through the pain, and reconnect with her family once everyone knows the truth. And just like me arguing in the shower talking to a washcloth, Rose has worked through her feelings by talking to Dorothy, even if she is asleep. In a total jerk move, Dorothy lets Rose go on about her family, even thanking Dorothy for her friendship— speaking quietly as not to wake her friend. A friend that isn't even actually asleep, only grateful that Rose finally got quiet so she could go to sleep. We've got past the badass personality trait to just flat out ass. Rose is only slightly offended as she rolls over to go to sleep, The next morning, we join Dorothy, who's on the couch reading a book in her flowy lavender collared blouse and Tommy Bahama wishes cream pants, while Blanche enters wearing a teal shirt and purple pants with heels on, of course. With newspaper in hand, she's come to update us on the trial of Duncan Osgood. Blanche once again channels my Grammy, who, being from Texas, once shared with me her opinions about the O.J. Simpson trial. Let's just say her verdict wasn't so much based on evidence. Blanche is unfazed by her own jumping of the gun and calling for the hanging of Duncan. It has now been proven that Duncan was framed by his butler who talked his maid into killing Mrs. Osgood. How flippant she is about the whole thing speaks volumes about how she might react in the future, I'm thinking she didn't really learn a lesson here about innocent until proven guilty. Kirsten enters in a light pink cardigan and floral skirt. Hearing her arrival, Rose comes in from the kitchen in a tan brown striped sweater with sadly colored cats all over it. It's not one of her best. Kirsten is there to get Charlie so they can go get lunch, then head to the airport. In a little bit of a plot whoopsie, Kirsten says that she was at the airport to change their flight... But according to Rose from the night before, she did all that to change it by what, a couple of hours? Because Rose said while she was talking to Dorothy that she was going to let Kirsten leave the following day without telling her what was going on. Well, that day would be today. So the only difference is that now before they leave, Rose has pulled Kirsten aside to talk. They sit down in the living room, Dorothy excusing herself, Blanche unabashedly sitting around to hear the drama. Rose then opens up about the money situation, that while Charlie worked hard and was successful when it came to friendships and family, he was a terrible businessman that really didn't make any money nor have any to leave for the family. Rose is totally vulnerable here, sharing the secret of her and Charlie's finances, that she still worries about if she ever made him feel like he was a failure. They didn't have the money, but they were rich in other ways. She expresses her love for Charlie in a way that almost forces Kirsten to get over herself so she doesn't come off like a total jerk. Kirsten simply hugs her mother, and like that, they are speaking again. And Kirsten is over it. That's nice and all, but I like to think that before they went back home, Rose pulled Kirsten aside and was like, hey, remember when you were a raging douche towards me because of money? Blanche wraps up the episode with a nice little synopsis. The nylons are happy, the Osgood case is closed, although she might be considering some water-based dicky play. When money and family mix, the outcome isn't always ideal, especially when someone is more focused on the gaining of finances than the loss of their loved one. Rose risked losing her daughter to protect her husband's legacy. Don't do that. The truth is always the best option, no matter what the consequences might be. So appreciate your loved ones for what they bring to your life, not what they might leave for you in death. Until next time, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we discuss sluts in the family tree with Nice and Easy. Not a land of parrots.
1: I guess we'll just have to make our own.
0: What? Qua, qua. <laughs>
1: What
0: what? Oh what mo oh um she sounds like Was that a good parrot? Well, we were in our local paper, the Portland Tribune.
1: When was that? That, that was, was over a year ago.
0: March, right before lockdown. <laughs> I usually I only read the paper when I'm in it. <laughs> I'm sorry to be so humble. I can't be bothered to read a paper unless I am in it. Am I the news? How
1: interesting I am.
0: (laughs) Then I guess I'll get a newspaper. But the spelling is nose. Uh, Yes. So if you ever need to remember this.
1: Yes. Think of Rafi, the famous singer, and he has a...
0: Nose. (laughs) I was going to say guitar. Oh. Does he? Have a nose? No, a guitar. That does sound like a face. (laughs) Yeah, I think he plays guitar.
1: (laughs) That was the most nonsense bullshit.
0: I'm sure they were all doing cocaine. It was prescribed to them, for God's sake.
1: Oh, maybe that's why it was boring. Yeah, they're like, oh, my medicine. We're over this. (laughs) My medicine
0: I have to take every day.
1: (laughs) Mom, do I have to take cocaine? (laughs) I hate the way it tastes.
0: Yeah, I would love to be in a will officially. I mean, I I was given Has a will ever
1: been in you? (gasps) Transition music
0: was lucky enough to only get lice twice. Uh, Excuse me.
1: pubic.
0: <laughs> always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.